Hello once again. Thanks for joining us. This is Space Nuts. My name is Andrew Dunkley. Great to have your company. And in episode 375, we will dedicate the entire show to audience questions. And we've got a bunch. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the Big Bang and the gravity associated with that. Uh, we'll also be looking into um, what the universe might be like if there was no such thing as dark matter. I love the what-if questions. And a carbon star called La Superba. Somebody's asking a question about that. We've got a whole bunch of questions. We better get into it right now uh, on Space Nuts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, and joining me again to discuss all of that and so much more is Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. How are you today? I'm very well, sir. Feeling relaxed. Uh, Judy and I did a four-night cruise out of Sydney last week, just uh, up to Morton Island and back. Uh, unfortunately, the weather was not kind to us, so we never got off the ship. Mm. So, um, but you know, <laughs> okay. that's okay. There's always plenty to do on a ship, and uh, we had a lot of fun. It was um, it was nice to just have a bit of a breather and just not have to worry about anything. No bed making, no cooking, no just get up, eat, go to sleep. That was pretty well the baton. <laughs> and, and and check out and check out watches as well, of course. Watch, go to the watch shop. Yes, I've um, <laughs> I've, I've, that's become a regular thing. When I go on a cruise ship, I don't know why, because they cost ten times more than if I go into a jewelry <laughs> shop. But uh, I just, I've, I've just become fixated with watches, and I think it's because my grandfather was a watchmaker. And mm. when I was growing up, I used to go to his shop and watch him out in his little workshop out the back uh, fixing watches in the days where you actually did fix them. And yep. I was just fascinated by it. Just. Thought it was amazing because during World War Two he was an instrument fitter for the RAAF, and right. so he was out uh, around the New Guinea Islands where the Japanese were occupying. So um, yeah, pretty tense times. Came back and got an apprenticeship as a watchmaker, and yeah, I even visited the first shop he worked for in Griffith when we were down there. Oh right, okay, yeah, yeah he sailed through uh, watchmaking with that instrument fitting background. Oh yeah. Cause the, the, you know, uh, certainly, in those days, the uh, the mechanics were much the same for yes. watches as for and aircraft instruments. That's yeah. why this watch I've got is fully mechanical. No batteries, no winding it up. Oh, it's yeah. automatic. It just winds itself. I've always uh, been fascinated by that. Yeah. yeah, it's good gear. I am. Um, I, just as an aside, um, so during the late fifties and early sixties, uh, in the United Kingdom. There were these wonderful government surplus shops, and there was one in particular that I used to hang out in. And I, I used to regularly buy lots of optical instruments, which is how I, you know, got hooked on on the way lenses work and things like that. And mm -hmm. it was all about trying to make telescopes for astronomy. But they also sold um, uh, aircraft instruments, uh, you know, surplus aircraft instruments. And pulling one of those to bits was a lesson in watchmaking, basically. Yeah. It was the same sort of stuff inside. It was remarkable. Yeah, it's so intricate too because he used to sit there with his little um, thing attached to his glasses so he could magnify his, what his he was watchmaker's oh. eyeglass. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Quite, quite a simple thing. Yeah. 
All right, we better get stuck into uh, whatever we're doing today, Fred, and um, that in, that involves audience questions. Well, we could just keep talking about watchmaking. Yeah, we could just keep. Well, it's just involve the audience as well. They yes. probably want to know yes. about watchmaking. Uh, let's go to our first question. This comes from a familiar voice. His name is Rusty. Hello, Fred and Andrew. It's Rusty and Donnybrook. Now we know it's common usage now that uh, common knowledge that gravity affects. Uh, the passage of time and we have to make adjustments for it with our satellite navigation. So taking that a step further, uh, black holes. As we're closer to black holes, um, yeah, a recent movie uh, highlighted that time slows down. Um, but the event horizon, there's no phys physical reason why at the event horizon uh, time wouldn't slow down further as you approach the singularity. And finally, when you get to the singularity of the point of infinite density, time would stop altogether, wouldn't it? So, one more step. We go to the Big Bang. Before it expanded into the universe, we know it was very tiny, and all of the matter uh, was squeezed into a very tiny little pinhead point. So, wouldn't gravity have slowed time down to an incredible degree, and what we measure now as milliseconds or silly seconds uh, would have perhaps taken very much longer as we would would measure it now today. And so, the uh, could the infant universe, the embryonic universe, have taken trillions of years to break out of its pinhead size? That's the question. Cheers, guys. Thanks, Rusty. Uh, you got there eventually. Um, so, yeah, could the early universe have uh, taken trillions of years to break out of its infinitesimal minusculeness? <laughs> if that's a word. Um, and the, the answer is yes, if you could have observed the universe from the outside, because it's yeah. all about reference frames. That's the, the thing. Um, it's why time... <clears throat> uh, you know, to an outside observer, time appears to slow down for somebody falling into a black hole. And in fact, it's when you cross the, ex the event horizon that time appears to stop altogether. Mm. <clears throat> Excuse me, I've got a, a time-dilated frog in my throat. Um, <laughs> so the, uh, the the bottom line is it's it's uh, about reference frames. But uh, uh, I think Rusty's his point is kind of well-made because the same thoughts has occurred to me that, you know, we talk about... The period of inflation, now I'm going to get these numbers wrong, but it's something like it started when the universe was 10 to the minus 33 of a second old and stopped when it was another 10 to the minus 33 of a second old. And those are just ridiculous, ridiculous timescales. But if you were in the privileged position, and I think there's only God can do this, but if you were uh, looking from the outside at the universe... Uh, then, yeah, it might look like trillions of years. That's right. Um, but for those of us involved directly with the Big Bang, which is everybody in the universe, um, it was uh, a very short, you know, it, it might have looked like a long time to, to somebody outside, but it was a very short time in the, in, in, the, in the time dilated rest frame. That's the way to be precise about that. Um, there is... Uh, there is some, we talked about it recently, Andrew, uh, some work that's been done here in Australia, uh, which involves looking at distant quasars. And there's 
a sort of clock signal that you get from those. And these astronomers showed that, yes, uh, we are looking from the outside effectively at the time regime that those quasars were in, and there is time dilation taking place. You can demonstrate that that what we see looks slower than what it actually was because of t uh, gravitational time dilation. It's just so hard to keep your head around. Yeah, you're looking puzzled there. Yeah. I don't blame you. <laughs> just the, the idea that the universe existed for trillions of years on a minute scale before the Big Bang. I mean, well, that's another possibility. Well, you can't well. you can't prove yeah. it, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's just that, that's just a massive time scale to try and absorb, uh, to try and you know. To try and figure, I mean, when we've talked in the past about what was there before the Big Bang, the answer is nothing. So there were trillions of years of nothing, yeah. and then there was something. No, 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 there wasn't trillions of years of it because time didn't exist either. So there was nothing, not even time. Not even time, right? See, I, <laughs> my brain doesn't like this. <laughs> no, no, I don't think anybody's brain does actually. I think you know that's. Uh, in that regard, watchmaking is a lot more straightforward than uh, rel uh, <laughs> relativistic cosmology. Yes, uh, because none of it is intuitive. You've you've really got to go into the mathematics and sort it out that way. But the big question is: if I did get sucked into a black hole and cross that threshold where time stopped, would my watch keep working? <laughs> it would. Yeah. Your watch wouldn't know any difference apart from being spaghettified. That yeah, might well, interfere yeah. with the works. Let's just it. pretend that didn't it, happen. It certainly muck up the, the self-winding mechanism. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. All right. Have we given enough attention to Rusty's question? I think we covved it. <laughs> I, you know, I always try to go on and Look, you say, hang on, there's one more thing. <laughs> Yeah, no, in as much as we ever cover anything, Andrew, I think, yeah, we've covered that. All right. Thanks, Rusty. Uh, let's Thanks. move on to our next question. Great. This one comes from Michael. This is a pretty deep thought question as well. Hey, guys. This is Michael calling from Toronto, Canada. I just have another question for you guys. I've uh, been thinking, we usually hear about um, Einstein's E equals MC squared as sort of a conversion uh, from mass into energy. So um, I understand that it's probably a bidirectional kind of conversion that could happen, but I don't usually hear much about uh, energy being reconverted into mass. Um, are there any situations that you're aware of where this does come up? Um, so I was thinking maybe this could explain dark energy or dark matter. Say maybe there are some kinds of energy like gravitational energy or maybe even the energy that's produced from photons in fusion in, in stars that's really that's um, somehow responsible for what we perceive as dark energy or dark matter. What do you think? Thanks, guys. Thank you, Michael. Um, yeah, like I said, a pretty deep thought type of question. Basically, uh, yeah, turning energy into mass. Uh, any evidence of that and, uh, you know, how would it work in a universal stage well, situation? The, the, um, the, uh, probably the most 
well-known example of energy being turned into mass is the Big Bang. Yeah. Um, because that stuff not was, you know, it's just energy. Uh, yeah, I guess photons and uh, eventually became, well, yeah, it, it became became a kind of super particles. In fact, the uh, the first set of, yeah, this is laws of physics, which is slightly different. The, the uh, there was there was a one of the first things that happened was the break between the electroweak force, which is what holds uh, at, um, nuclei of atoms together, and the electromagnetic force, which is photons. That sort of happened in the early Big Bang period, uh, but that's that's more um, a, a, a sort of separation of forces rather than energy being turned into mass. Uh, but energy did get turned into mass. That's kind of how it worked. Mm. Uh, but if you check up. Um, Online, it's a it's a rare phenomenon, uh, but there are examples. I think we've actually talked about them before, Andrew. It's quite a long time ago, but um, the back in 2021, uh, the Brookhaven National Laboratory in the USA, uh, uh, basically they issued a press release entitled "Collisions of Light Produce Matter Antimatter from Pure Energy." Uh, and so, um, and this is a, an article that you can read. It goes into details about uh, particle collisions in the relativistic heavy ion collider, the RHIC, which is a, a U.S. Department of Energy Office of Science user facility for nuclear physics, and it's a Brookhaven, the DOE's Brookhaven uh, National Laboratory. So, what they've done uh, is uh, they basically um, collided. Uh, essentially beams of light. I might actually read the, the beginning because that, that explains it a lot better than I can. Mm -hmm. uh, they've produced definitive evidence for two physics phenomena predicted more than 80 years ago. The results were derived from a detailed analysis of more than 6,000 pairs of electrons and positrons produced in glancing particle collisions at the RHIC and are published in Physical Review Letters. The primary finding is that pairs of electrons and positives, in other words, sorry, Pairs of electrons and positrons, in other words, particles of matter and antimatter, can be created directly by colliding very energetic photons, which are quantum packets of light. This conversion of energetic light into matter is a direct consequence of Einstein's famous e equals mc squared equation, which states that energy and matter, or mass, are interchangeable. Uh, nuclear Reactions in the sun and at nuclear power plants regularly convert matter into energy. Now scientists have converted light energy directly into matter in a single step. Uh, and so you can you can read more about that. But that it, what that tells you, Andrew and and Michael, in, indeed, is that um, we're talking about something that's not a commonplace phenomenon in the natural world, mm. um, where we're seeing the other process happening all the time in the sun, uh, matter being converted into energy. But to convert energy into matter is a rarity, but it can be done, as, as we've just heard. All right, Michael, so the answer was yes. Could have saved a lot of time if we just said that. But good. Um, uh, yes, yeah, yeah, could have done, yeah. very good question. <laughs> very, very good question. Um, and and uh, is, um, how would that relate to his uh, question about black holes and uh, dark matter, dark energy? Any relationship there? Yeah, sorry, I should have, should have followed up on that. Um, uh, well, the thing is that uh, you know, dark energy. Um, our understanding of dark energy and dark matter um, 
that they, they, they take into account this rarity of such uh, kind of reverse engineering taking place of creating mass from uh, from energy purely from energy. And I think um, I, I suspect it's not something that has been overlooked by the cosmologists involved. Uh, the possibility, but I think it's such a difficult thing to achieve uh, that um, you know I, it might it might be it might be uh, something that. Uh, is essentially ruled out by the theory. And what, what, what I was going to say was, um, we we kind of what we don't know about dark matter and dark energy is what they are. Mm. Um, we can kind of guess where they came from because the Big Bang lets you uh, look at the kind of energy budgets that are there, and you, you basically get what we see around us today. If you do the mathematics, uh, universe that's kind of three quarters dark energy, uh, about twenty percent dark matter, and five percent everything else. Yeah. So uh, it's more about the puzzle with dark matter and dark energy is how they, you know, what they are, what what particles carry dark matter, what subatomic particles as well, because you can look at it that way would carry dark energy, and we don't know the answer to that. Mm, Although okay. we can sort of work out where they came from, if that's a paradox that you can deal with. All right. Uh, thank you, Michael. Uh, yes, and maybe, probably not, don't know, I think, were the answers <laughs> to your question. Uh, it's the same answer we always give up. Yeah, it is, pretty much. Uh, lovely to hear from you, Michael. Yeah. Hope all is well in Toronto. Uh, Peter has uh, emailed us a question. Uh, Peter is from Sydney and uh, uh, a proud patron. So uh, thank you very much, Peter. Uh, appreciate your support uh, of Space Nuts as a patron. He says, money well spent. Look, it's there in writing. Um, I, I'm surprised but delighted. Uh, now, he, he asks, uh, I'm praising his question because it's quite long. Uh, what if the universe evolved from the Big Bang without any dark matter? Apart from probably halving the number of questions from listeners, <laughs> uh, what other effects would there be? Uh, could galaxies still form but maybe rotating at a lower velocity so they don't fling apart? Uh, would they still have spiral arms and all the other shapes and sizes they come in? Would solar systems form in a different way? Would we still have galaxy clusters? And what about black holes? Surely dark matter is not the only mechanism in the universe um, that uh, has to coalesce uh, hydrogen. Or am I wrong? Um, if the above is no. I can only assume that the universe would just be an ever-expanding soup of hydrogen and helium atoms. Looking forward to your, an your answer. Toddy. Uh, thanks, Todd. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I love what-if questions. What if there was no dark matter or dark energy or any of that stuff? Uh, I thought that was from Peter, not Toddy. <laughs> uh, Peter. Well, he calls himself Toddy, but uh, Peter Todd is his name. Ah, right. Sorry. Peter Todd, right. Now you see you missed yeah. that bit. Uh, that's, no, that's great. Uh, nice to hear from you, Toddy. Uh, I always have quite different uh, pictures in my mind when I think of a Toddy. It's a mixture of water and whiskey uh, that uh, is uh, got honey in it, and it's what gets you through a bad cold, uh, especially if your whiskey is something nice and peaty like Lagavulin. Anyway, uh, moving on to other things. Um, so uh, it's a great question because uh, that's exactly the issue that the proponents of MOND have to deal with. 
Mm. And Mond uh, is, which we've talked about many times, is this alternative theory that gets rid of the idea of dark matter, modified Newtonian dynamics, Mordechai Milgram's contribution to the world of physics back in the 1980s when dark matter was first being recognized as a reality. Uh, he didn't like the idea and looked at the idea that perhaps our understanding of dynamics was wrong, the way um, you know accelerations take place at very, very low levels of acceleration. And he developed this theory of MOND, Modified Newtonian Dynamics, which has merit, as we know, because we've got friends uh, on uh, on Space Nuts, notably Peter Verweyen, whose PhD thesis is on exactly this topic. And Peter talks to us from time to time. So um, so MOND has, uh, certainly has some uh, useful attributes. But I think one of the things now, Peter might well be able to correct me on this, and I'm talking about Peter Verweyen now, not Peter Todd. Um, but I think it struggles to make galaxies in the early universe because of exactly what uh, Toddy has has mentioned: the fact that the we think the dark matter provided a framework that uh, basically attracted gravitationally attracted the hydrogen uh, and made um, you know made stars and galaxies by by that acting as a kind of nucleus for for gravitational attraction. And yes, uh, it would be possible to imagine a universe that never formed stars and galaxies, and it would indeed be made mostly of hydrogen and helium mm. uh, with not much going on. Uh, so um, I think that is uh, I think that is still an issue for Mond, uh, but we might hear from Peter that um, there are answers to that. But, you know, it's, it's a great question. And, and like all, or like so many of the questions we get, from Space Nuts listeners, it's right at the cutting edge of research. Yeah. Um, uh, that Todd is asking questions that we we really probably don't properly know the answers to. No, no, it, it doesn't stop people wondering, and it's the fact that uh, we wonder indeed. that leads us to investigate, that leads to ultimately answers in some cases. Be fair. Point. Yes, we hope. Thank yeah, you. we hope. <laughs> we hope. Yes. Yeah. Uh, or yeah. it just brings up more questions. Which is quite common too. Uh, well, that's the other thing that happens as well. That's right. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Peter uh, or Toddy, as you seem to like to be called. Appreciate your uh, question. Thanks for sending it in. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Let's take a little break from the show to tell you about our sponsor, Nord VPN. And I'm pleased to be able to tell you that Nord has got a, a, a new offer available to you as a Space Nuts listener. Now, I might add that you get exclusivity with this plan. This is just for Space Nuts listeners on the special URL, nordvpn.com slash space nuts. What they're offering... Uh, is uh, with every purchase of a two-year plan, you will receive four bonus months uh, on top of what you've already bought, and that includes all their plans, their standard, their plus, and their complete plans. And uh, all you have to do is go to that URL to find out more about it. Uh, it's a fabulous deal, and it's uh, it's it's something that is uh, available right now as a Space Nuts listener. Uh, now, I've been using NordVPN for, uh, gosh, it'd be well over a year now. Uh, I, I got everything. 
I got absolutely everything because I, I love um, I love their interface. I love the simplicity of it. It's uh, I love its speed. It's high speed VPN. I've noticed no lag whatsoever in using their VPN service, and it protects me from uh, well spyware, uh, hackers, uh, spammers, and not forgetting the censorship issues that you sometimes face and that geo blocking as well. Uh, you can deal with all of that with Nord VPN. Uh, but you can also get malware protection. You can get the tracker and ad blocker, the cross-platform password manager. That's my favorite thing. The uh, data breach scanner. Uh, and if you want to save space on your computer hard drive, you can use NordVPN one terabyte cloud storage. Just pull your stuff on there. Very easy to access and, uh, and, and protected. Uh, you'll never lose it. Um, unlike your computer completely dying and corrupting the hard drive and it's all gone. Uh, there's also the next generation file encryption. Uh, now there are multiple plans. You can get the basic plan on the monthly, yearly or two yearly deal. Obviously the longer you go, uh, the cheaper it gets. There are big discounts on at the moment uh, leading up to Black Friday and you can take advantage of that right now as a Space Nuts listener. This uh, deal is exclusive to you at nordvpn.com slash spacenuts nordvpn.com slash space nuts uh, you'll get an introduction page and then uh, click on get the deal and find out all that you need to know and all the plans that are available right now with that extra four months and of course don't forget their 30-day money-back guarantee that's nordvpn.com slash space nuts now back to the show three two one space nuts Okay, Fred, uh, let's um, go to another audio question. Uh, this one I was particularly interested in because I think we talked about this not so long ago. This one comes from Doug. Hello, Dr. Watson and Mr. Dunkley. Uh, this is Doug Stoneback from Boise, Idaho. And I was just wondering, uh, we were looking at a carbon star called La Superba. It's a red giant. And just wondering if, or one, this turns into a planetary nebula, would it show the same color because of its richness in carbon in the atmosphere? Are there any planetary nebulae that came from carbon stars? And thirdly, in regards to the blue snowball, the blinking planetary and the cat's eye nebula, of course, they're all a bluish and turquoise type of color. Um, is that due to their atmospheric makeup? Could it possibly be methane, as in Neptune and Uranus? I'd love to know the answers to these questions so I can pass this along to the public. Thank you. And have a great day and keep up the fabulous work. Thank you, Doug. Uh, La Superba, I suppose we should start by explaining a bit about it and what a carbon star is, and then we can sort of um, move into the, the spectrums. Yeah, uh, indeed. So it's a star. I, I'm interested to know actually whether Doug has um, observed it uh, because it's. Um, it's uh, let's see. I think it's uh, yeah. It's, it's fifth magnitude. It's a star that's visible to the naked eye, uh, not 
particularly so from our latitude here in the southern hemisphere because uh, its declination is 45 degrees north, which means that it's a northern hemisphere uh, star. It's in the constellation of uh, Canes Venatici. Uh, and in fact, it is Y, Canem Venaticorum. There you go. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> the hunting dogs, Canes Venatici. Uh, and that's a northern constellation. It does uh, cross our northern horizon here in Australia, but uh, not for long. Uh, and so it's not one that would be well known. And in fact, at that zenith distance, in other words, that low in the sky uh, from uh, from here, a fifth magnitude star is probably not going to be that visible to the naked eye, mm. especially if you're anywhere near city, city lights. Uh, but um, <clears throat> yeah, so, uh, but it's called uh, La Superba, uh, and it was named by uh, an Italian astronomer in the 19th century, whose name was Angelo Secchi. Or Secchi. Uh, he um, he called it La Superba because of its beauty, and its beauty comes from the fact that it's a very red star. In fact, it's one of the reddest stars known, uh, and it is uh, exactly as Doug has mentioned, it's a carbon star, uh, and carbon stars have a richness of carbon in their atmosphere. <clears throat> um, so this is a, a star that's um, uh, it's slightly bigger than the sun in terms of its mass, mm. but it's turned, it's evolved into a red giant. And in fact, uh, one of the estimates of its diameter is effectively bigger than the orbit of the Earth, so around wow. the sun. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's big. Um, and so what you what you get is uh, basically um, uh, you get a, a core of, of carbon and oxygen, um, and uh, w within the star, this is kind of the old age of stars, similar mass to the sun. Mm. Uh, but uh, the hydrogen and helium burning continues, but it's in shells, uh, sort of outside the core. Uh, and basically, uh, though that this this convection takes place that dredges up the carbon from the core, uh, the carbon and oxygen in the core, the carbon's dredged up into the outer atmosphere, uh, and it forms carbon monoxide and other carbon compounds. And basically, um, you get absorption uh, of the of the light from the the still burning hydrogen. Uh, in short wavelengths, in other words, it turns red, uh, and that's so. It, it's a red giant star uh, at a particular phase in its uh, in its evolution. Um, it's already got a shell of stuff that it's ejected, um, and you can sort of detect that because of once again of the spectrum. But eventually. Uh, that will turn into, exactly as Doug says, a planetary nebula. Now, I'm not sufficiently familiar with the details of planetary nebulae to understand 
uh, or at least to keep carrying my head, where the where the different elements come from that are in planetary nebulae. They clearly come from the, the star itself uh, through the nuclear processes that have taken place while the star was in its normal life. But what's happened uh, with a planetary nebula is that basically the star has cast off its outer layers and the core itself has turned into a white dwarf star. It's a, um, a white dwarf which is um, highly energetic uh, collapsed core of a star uh, which is pretty bright and very very hot hence its color uh, and will last a long time before it eventually turns into a black dwarf which is what most of the stars that we see around us are going to do uh, in the distant universe but um uh, i so so um, doug's comments about um the the materials uh in the in the um, tendrils of these planetary nebulae, which are only called that because some of them look like planets. They're not. They're just shells of gas, uh, often with quite co- complex morphologies. They've got very troubled-looking appearance. Uh, I, I'm, I, I can't comment on the details of that, uh, but I could, you know, I'll try and try and uh, put some detail on that for the future. Uh, but Doug could be right about, for example, methane being in there because the, these things are cool enough that molecules can form. The, the, the hot bit is the white dwarf at the center, but yeah. it's cooler in the edges. So there's probably molecules which, which can only form in relatively cool conditions. Um, I'd, I'll check that because it's an interesting question, uh, what uh, elements and molecules you get in planetary nebulae. Hmm. Okay. All right, Doug, we'll leave it there, but uh, there'll be more to come. But, uh, yeah, thought-provoking question, and thanks for sending it in to us. Uh, we'll move on to a text question now from Dylan. He said, hi there. I have a fun what-if scenario for you to think about. Imagine a world where every space agency had an unlimited budget and zero bureaucratic hurdles starting from the 1950s or even earlier. In such a scenario, how advanced do you envision not only space technology but all technologies to be today? Uh, Could uh, NASA have established a presence on Mars in, say, the 1990s, maybe asteroid mining in the early 2000s? Uh, This concept resonates with the TV series For All Mankind, where the space race continues at full throttle and technology is pushed and milestones are achieved that have um, not been seen today in real life. I'd be interested in in what you both think. Cheers, Dylan. Uh, I love what-if questions. So we've got a situation, Fred, where there is no limit. They can spend as much as they they like. There are no bureaucrats or politicians to slow them down, what would the world be like today in terms of space exploration and development? Well, I think Dylan's right, actually, uh, and I think you probably think that as well. I think it to a certain degree. I I think uh, what they portray in um, For All Mankind, and the new season's just about to come out on Apple TV, by the way, uh, it's I, I, I think it's showing the extreme end of the possibility um but i i don't think in in real terms we would have achieved what they've achieved in that series as a science fiction show in real terms today we'd probably be much further down the track than we are and i think we'd probably be on mars in some sort of habitat by now but um i i don't think it'd be as uh as glitzy as as it is portrayed in the show, I, that's interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking that that we'd be somewhat further down the track, but not to a great extent. Would be my feeling on it. 
simply okay. because of the technological so, limitations that we would have faced. Yeah, I've never seen um, for all for all my. Oh, time you got it! You got to check it out. It's so clever. Yeah, it's just an no, alternative there's, there's history. No series. way. No way at all. <laughs> all we all we are allowed to watch is uh, Scandinavian Scandinavian murders. <laughs> Well, there you go. <laughs> You've got yourself boxed in. Well. Yeah, I'm boxed in by that. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, but so, but I'm I'm relying on you, Andrew, as my um, for all mankind spy to keep me posted on what happens. Well, I think uh, the next and, season, that, the next season, because last season they ended up on Mars. This season, it's actually set in the future, and. They are now going way beyond that, and and it, it gets into the realm of asteroid mining and and that kind of thing. So, um, it's uh, it, it sort of started with a bang because the Russians were first on the moon, and <laughs> I I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't watched the previous season because there was a big revelation in that about who was first on Mars, but I can't I can't do that. Um, but it, it does sort of push the envelope in terms of human yeah. development in space uh, technology. And, and uh, it does sort of make you think, yeah, what if they did have unlimited resources? What if the world had taken a different attitude and a different approach to space exploration early on? Would we be that far down the track now? My feeling is not quite. We'd certainly be probably much better position to do these things now than we uh, than we ordinarily would be but I, i'm just not sure we'd be as as far as that show indicates in terms of uh, human so does the, successes does the show uh does it imagine world peace or is there still a political imperative to do better than your neighbours. There's still a political imperative to do better than your neighbours, yeah. uh, and it's um, it's it's sort of evolved into a, a race between the United States and Russia and the private sector. Uh, that was okay in the last season portrayed. The race to Mars was was a three horse race, and. Well, it turned out to be a four-horse race that nobody knew about. There was a there was a sneaky phantom um, player in the, but I can't I, I can't let the cat out of the bag for those who haven't no, seen no. it. But it's yeah. um yeah, and it was it, it, you basically had three missions heading for Mars at the same time, and I think in reality that probably wouldn't happen. Although we've seen it recently with the Moon, there were three missions happening around about the same time to the Moon. Um, involving the Russians, Mars is much more likely. Yeah, um, sorry, I, but I, I think the way Mars would, and and we've talked about this before. I think the way to successfully achieve a, a, a human mission to Mars would be to collaborate rather than compete. I, I so I uh, think that's where the difference is going to be. I um, I agree with that actually, <laughs> for, from my position of complete ignorance on the on the show. But I agree that um, uh, I think it will be collaboration in the end uh, because it is you know it is such a major achievement to get mm. to Mars. Um, I was just going to comment though that the idea of people setting off to Mars at the same time isn't isn't too fantastic because the windows, windows. to get uh, to launch spacecraft to Mars are every twenty six months. Yeah, uh, and if you miss one, you've got. Only six months before you you can do it again, 
So um, it's uh, just because of the orbital geometry. But yeah, that's look. You've I think you've answered that far better than I could have done, Andrew. Uh, and so uh, yeah, it's a it's an interesting question, and uh, I, I'm sure we would have advanced more rapidly, uh, just because you could have, you could throw infinite amounts of money at the technology, and uh, that would certainly refine things. But uh, when you throw in that political dimension, though, you've got a whole lot of different aspects to think about. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. Thank you, Dylan. Uh, our next question comes from uh, Fenton. Hello, Fred and Andrew. Enjoying your show as ever. This is Fenton in Minnesota. I have two related questions for you. One, is it possible to have two or more planets in the same orbit? For example, opposing each other. And what would have happened to Mars or Venus if this had been the case for us? Take it away, guys. Thanks, Fenton. So um, uh, I'll get you to explain opposing orbits first up, Fred, and yeah, and then we'll get to the what-if part of it. Uh, so, Well, so t- I guess what, um, what Fenton means is, uh, you know, planets on, on opposite sides of the solar system uh, but in, in the, the same, same orbit. Plane. Um, yeah, and same or- I think he means in the same orbit, actually, not All just right. the same orbit plane, but the same uh, And um, we kind of, we, we've already got that in terms of uh, the Trojan asteroids that accompany uh, several of the planets, including our own, around in the orbit of the Earth. Um, So what you've got is uh, stable points, the two, uh, what is it, the third and fourth Lagrange, sorry, fourth and fifth Lagrange points. Uh, I can never remember which one is ahead of the planet. So you you can put something else at one of those Lagrange points and it will be stable. Um, And effectively, uh, you know, you, you get this scenario where, uh, objects actually orbit around those Lagrange points uh, in the same way as they do, uh, you know, for example, as um, as the James Webb Telescope and the Gaia spacecraft, as they orbit around uh, the L2 Lagrange point, which is on the opposite side of the Earth from the Sun, uh, about a million and a half kilometers away. So, But that's not quite the same thing. The reason why um, I raise that is that it shows that you can have objects which occupy the same orbit uh, as a planet, but they have to be in particular positions in order to be stable. Um, I think that the certainly the, the Trojan asteroids are uh, examples of a problem where you've got two large bodies, namely the, for example, in the case of the ones in the Earth's orbit, you've got the Earth and the Sun, and they their gravity mutually shepherds these much smaller orbits into those stable positions. So um, it's... It, it, it may well be that if you put, you know, two equally sized planets, uh, then there are different characteristics, and it may well be that you can only have them, for example, at um, the, the the second Lagrange point or something like that. Um, I sorry, the the third Lagrange point, which is on the other side of the sun from from uh, whatever the planet is. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting scenario, and. It certainly would have changed the dynamics of the solar system. The solar system would look very different with uh, an object 
in it that was always on the opposite side of the sun. Um, I mean, there are some, you know, conspiracy theories that say that that's the case, yeah. but it's not. Yeah, I've heard it's that one. Not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, and, um, you know, for, uh, yeah, had it been the case for Mars and Venus, for example, we we would certainly have had different sorts of observations of the of the planets. Mm. Uh, it's an interesting question, Fenton, and uh, that's a waffly answer, but um, but it's uh, the only one I've got at the moment. <laughs> no, fair enough. All right. Uh, thanks, Fenton. Lovely to hear from you. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. Uh, now, Fred, we've got a text question from William. Uh, this is going to take a while to read. How does gravity make planets round? <laughs> uh, yeah, that took quite a while, did that? It did. Yeah. I'm, so, I'm sorry, I have to take a breath. Yes, yes, yeah. So what you meant was how? <gasps> does gravity make planets round? Yes, that, maybe it, yeah, I got the inflection wrong. But uh, if I want to be really super technical, I should have said how does uh, gravity make planets spherical? Yes, you should. Mm. That's right, um, and it's it's because um, if you if you have a fluid, and at, and at the time that these objects became spherical, they were molten largely. Uh, so you've got a fluid, um, and what it wants to do is uh, pull itself to a central point. That's what it's trying to do. That's how gravity works. It's trying to pull itself to some sort of central point. And because that's happening in all directions, uh, this gravity pulling is isotropic, uh, happens in all directions, uh, then what you get is naturally a sphere. Uh, it's um, something that um, you see uh, with bubbles of liquid in the International Space Station, Yeah, um, but it's not... It's not gravity that does it there. It's surface tension, but surface tension has a similar effect. It, it tries to minimize the, the size of the surface. And I suppose in a sense, that's what the gravity is doing. But it's a, it's a rather different me me uh, mechanism. So it's, it's always pulling towards that central point, and that just makes it naturally spherical. Just, just It's a natural state of being, basically. It, it is, yes. Mm. For something big enough... To have been fluid and for the gravity to overcome the resistance of whatever, whatever the, the you know is left uh, to, to uh, whatever viscosity is left in the fluid. Mm. The shorter answer, William, would have been because. Which reminds me, um, on the cruise last week, I, I, we went to a we loved going to a trivia section where if you couldn't answer the question, you had to provide a dad joke, and <laughs> that was the fun part. Okay. Um, why did the chicken cross the road? Nah, because. Because? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I like that one. Yeah, yeah that's I pretty like good. That uh, let's uh, get a uh, an, an audio. Thanks, William. Uh, audio question now from Chris. Hello, Dr. Fred and Andrew. This is Chris Foley in the United States, uh, just outside of Boston. Love the show. Um, you guys are great, and uh, it's my favorite podcast. Certainly, my favorite astrophysics podcast. Uh, my question is not related to black holes, but uh, antimatter. And I'm watching um, a documentary now, uh, which is talking about the creation of antimatter um, 
through the decay of titanium 44. Now, I did not realize that antimatter was, I thought it could not be produced. I thought it was theoretical. Clearly, I'm wrong. But uh, I was hoping that, uh, Dr. Fred, you could um, expand on antimatter and how it is created and how much, how often do we see it? Thank you very much. Enjoy the show and uh, all the best to you guys. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Chris. Um, lovely to hear from you. Hope all is well in the Boston area. Um, one thing I don't think we want happening is the expansion of antimatter. <laughs> if we can sp expand on the idea, but not the not the yeah. <clears throat> so, so um, antimatter uh, differs from normal matter in that it's got the opposite electrical charge. Uh, and that's why a couple of minutes ago we were talking about, um, when we were talking about turning energy directly into mass, uh, we mentioned that the mass that was produced was electrons and positrons. So electrons have a negative charge, positrons are the same thing, but with a positive charge. So uh, it's all about electricity. It's about the electromagnetic force. And yes, there are, there are ways of producing antimatter, uh, and that, not just the one that we described earlier in the show. Uh, it's um, it, it, it can be done in uh, large um, colliders, large uh, particle accelerators, uh, because there are certain collisions and certain reactions that actually produce antimatter equivalents, which almost usually, uh, certainly, uh, well, most commonly, they just annihilate one another because mm. that's what happens with matter and antimatter. They annihilate each other. So... Um, so yeah, so uh, I'm not familiar with the uh, process that uh, uh, that Chris was talking about regarding titanium forty four. It's an interesting one. I'll check it out. Mm. But it's not unusual for antimatter to be pr uh, produced in in these particle uh, collisions. Um, we believe that it was produced in the early universe as well. Uh, and one of the problems that cosmologists face uh, in trying to explain the way the universe looks is why that today. As far as we know, we see a predominance of matter rather than antimatter, whereas the mathematics seem to suggest that in the Big Bang, they should be created equally. Uh, matter and antimatter should be created in equal proportions, um, but they clearly aren't because we've got an imbalance. Uh, like we are surrounded by matter, which is just as well, because if we were surrounded by antimatter, uh, it would be uh, a bit violent. So, um, so yeah, interesting um, really interesting uh, question about the production of, of matter and antimatter, but it's even more interesting when it gets to, to, to be a discussion about the origin of the universe because it's yeah. still one of those unsolved problems. Uh, I, I did find just a, a one-liner from uh, back in 2017. Titanium-44 decays uh, to scandium and then to calcium emitting positrons the antimatter equivalent of electrons in the second decay. There you go. So, yeah, it does happen. Mm. Well, thank you. I had to try. Uh, okay, thanks, Chris. Um, uh, I, I think we um, dealt with your antimatter, which means we didn't answer the question. Next, uh, we, go, <laughs> we go to uh, Nick, who's uh, got a really interesting question, um, which... Uh, yeah, it, it's thought-provoking. I wouldn't have thought of this, but uh, Nick certainly did. Hello, Fred and Andrew. This is Nick Lindsay here from Perth. 
Um, I have a question that takes us back to the moon, and specifically the description that we use of the lava flows on the moon. Now, lava tends to be very viscous, and in a low-gravity environment like the moon, or microgravity, I should say, I don't quite understand how it would flow. Um, should it just not pond or build up like Olympus Mon has in Mars? And the other thing is that lava tends to be full of gas, and should we not be seeing massive amounts of frothing, given that um, the gas is expanding into a vacuum? Anyway, those are just comments. Um, love the show. Carry on. Bye. Uh, thank you, Nick. Uh, yeah, it's a good question because uh, lava flows on Earth are subject to a 1G environment. Uh, the moon would have been quite different when it came to um, the, the situation with its molten activity, I imagine. Uh, it, it's um, Yes, that's right, because, I mean, the, the, that's the number one thing that's different. The, the moon's only got one-sixth of the gravity of the Earth. Um, but um, I think um, I think Nick is um, generalising a little bit more than perhaps a volcanologist would. And in fact, the <clears throat> volcanologist who I know best is also called Nick, Nick Petford, uh, formerly of the University of Northampton and who has been with us many times to look at volcanoes in uh, different parts of the world, principally Iceland oh, and Hawaii. I'd love to hang with that guy. <clears throat> oh, he's probably a volcano yeah. junkie myself. Yeah, no, he's fabulous. Anyway, uh, well, you will know if you're a volcano junkie that lava comes in different types. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, there's the a'a lava. These are mostly Hawaiian terms. Uh, it's um, it's basalt. Basalt doesn't flow particularly quickly. Um, and the Hawaiians say it's called a'a because that's what you say when you walk on it in bare feet because it's still sharp and got, um, it got sharp points to it. Uh, <clears throat> that's a story, but uh, it's a good one. Um, then another Hawaiian term, pahoehoe, uh, or pahauho, uh, it's a much more viscous, sorry, a much less viscous lava uh, that flows very, very readily indeed. Mm. Uh, and it's what you see splashing around. Um, that there's a, you know, when Kilauea erupts, uh, a volcano on the big island of Hawaii, that's what you see. Yeah. It's also splashing called, around. It's also called uh-oh lava. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, probably is. Yeah, uh, but it, it's it's um, it's it's yeah, it's very very liquid, very viscous. Um, it would it would sort of settle down uh, without uh, without too much fuss if you put it into a bucket. <laughs> um, and then there's pillow lava, which uh, is what you get when lava is erupts under a, a water surface underneath the ocean. It's what you get forming under. Um, ocean vents so uh but i think i mean the as i understand it the lava flows on the moon are principally basalt which means it's going to be our lava um predominantly uh but but i it, it clearly has enough of a flow to it that it can form these flat planes uh it's what we see now when you look at those closely is uh a, a, you see it covered by the lunar regolith. You don't you don't see the lava surface itself. It's got a, a soil on top of it that has resulted from erosion uh, caused by you know micrometeoroids caused by solar radiation, all of that stuff. Um, so if it was frothy and bubbly, uh, you tend not to see it. That would have been worn down because we're talking now about 
lava flows three and a half billion years ago. Yeah. They're not recent. Um, even though they look relatively smooth. I was looking at the moon last night through a little telescope, and uh, I'm always blown away by just how smooth those uh, those maria, the, the lava planes, look. Mm. Uh, and that's an illusion. They're not. They're quite hilly and uh, pockmarked with craters when you look at them closely. But uh, on their large scale, they look very smooth. Uh, so, yeah. So I don't think there's an issue there. It's a good question, though, Nick. And um, I hope that helps you to answer it. Excellent. Uh, thanks, Nick. Lovely to get your question. And uh, a reminder, if you do have questions for Fred, uh, you can send them into us via our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. There's a couple of options there, the AMA tab or that little buttony thing on the right-hand side that's purple for some reason. Uh, and, yeah, keep them coming. Um, we've got a whole bunch, but we always want more. So uh, send them in to us. Don't forget to tell us who you are or um, and, and where you're from. We we love to know all about you, uh, how many dogs and cats you've got, budgies, whatever. Uh, and uh, Sorry? Goldfish. Goldfish. Goldfish are very important in the world. Yes, I had plenty. I had plenty in my life. Loved them. My favourite was a little one called Spot. Um <laughs> He, he was cool. Let me let me guess why he was called Spot. Have a go. Did he have a spot? He had, he had, life, had a spot. He had a white spot on his body. Yes, he did. Um, he was so excited every time I walked in the room. That's why I liked him. He used to just go. Oh, it was here. No, he actually probably was just going food, 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 food. Yeah. I imagine. Uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, send your questions in and have a browse while you're there. Check out the shop and uh, maybe you want to become a patron. Uh, you can do that on our website as well, spacenutspodcast.com. Fred, that wraps it up for another week. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. I uh, love the thought-provoking questions. Mm, here, here. Me too. So I'll see you, uh, see you in a week or less or more. <laughs> Who knows? No, I, I, I think I can manage that. I think that would be great. Yeah, <laughs> let's, do, let's do it, Andrew. Let's do it for a change. Let's okay, just for once. In a week. Yeah. Thanks, Fred. Catch you later. Sounds good. Take care. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at Space Nuts. Uh, Hugh was unable to join us in the production booth this week, so everything went perfectly. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, great to be with you. Hope you can join us again on the very next episode of Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.